Hello. Hello, I'm Georgia. And I'm John. And today we're going to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. Mmm. Comfort Films Podcast. Season 2. Hello everyone, and welcome to Comfort Films Podcast, Episode 70, Heat. This is the second week in our Comfort Crime Month, and I can't tell you how happy we both are to talk about Heat. This is our first movie where we're bringing in the big man, Al Pacino. Yes, my guy, my number one guy. Right, it definitely my number one guy, too. The king of kings out there. I mean, this guy, I mean, this is who you watch. This is who you learn from. I mean, Robert De Niro, he's no slouch himself. You know, I mean, incredible in this. Yes. Everyone is incredible top to bottom. This is such a tightly packed, dense movie that, I mean, I can't even take it all in in one viewing because there's so much in there. And I can't believe how long it is because it moves so quickly that it just doesn't feel like an a, like almost three-hour movie. No, it, it doesn't in any way. It, it doesn't in any way. At all. No, no. But yeah, Al Pacino is such a great actor and we love him so much and we're actually going to hold him in our little pockets for the rest of the <laughs> month because he's going to be in a lot of our other... Uh, selections uh, for crime month but this will be our first pacino yeah it's big it's like yeah pacino in the pocket you know that's (laughs) pocket pocket pacino this month on comfort films podcast (sighs) so i'm going to take a minute here i have this introduction that i wrote up and that kind of just summarizes what we're going to be getting into today so uh without further ado here we go Understanding the lives and motivations of law enforcement and criminals has been a lifelong passion for Michael Mann, and 1995's epic crime drama Heat explores the symbiotic relationship between these two groups more deeply than any other film in his catalog. Written and directed by Michael Mann and shot by Dante Spinotti, Heat boasts an impressive cast comprised of the Hollywood elite and has the designation of being the first film to feature Al Pacino and Robert De Niro together in a scene. The parallel lives of Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley are derived from the real-life story of Chicago Police Sergeant Detective Chuck Adamson, who invited career criminal Neil McCauley to have coffee with him in the hopes of getting a better idea of the man that he was pursuing. Much like in the film, the two men developed a rapport after speaking together, but neither was deterred from pursuing their inevitable collision course. At the scene of a robbery the following year, Adamson shot and killed Neil McCauley. After years of rigorous detailed research, the initial screenplay of Heat, entitled L.A. Takedown, was released as a television movie in 1989. According to Michael Mann, approximately 40% of the script for L.A. Takedown was reused in the script for Heat, and Heat received a wide release in the United States on December 15, 1995, and has come to be regarded as a classic in the genre. Absolutely is a classic. Yeah, it is. I mean, the research that he put in, the time that he spent, Michael Mann had these relationships with police officers and criminals. He would go out on calls with the police yeah, it, it's it's rigorous, as you said. And also, he has such a personalization mm. to it. Like, he really understands the criminals and the cops, and it's and it really comes through. I would say this is kind of like 
the ultimate cops and robbers movie. It's the best. I mean, and to think about the fact that this story is actually transplanted. Now, all of this happened in Chicago. And 1963 was when Neil McCauley and Chuck Adamson met. And in 1964 is when Neil McCauley was killed. So, I mean, this is an old tale. Yeah, it is. You it know, is. and they brought it here. You know, and it's it's different. Chicago, Los Angeles. And then he took all of this information, Michael Mann did, from these other things that he had done. Like, he did the, that thing in prison, um, Jericho Mile. Yes. Where, you know, he was actually shooting something that was happening in a prison. And he met all of these prisoners. And he just got to know these people and their stories. And he actually took all of that information and packed it into this film. So it's just like the characters in this are better than any kind of criminal character movies I've ever seen. Where you've got like the police chasing criminals. Every character is so richly detailed. Um, even, you know, the smaller members of the team's. Like the the character of Trejo, which is played by Danny Trejo. That's so good. He's not in it, you know, half as much as the rest of the crew, but I still feel like I know who he is. And he has that really great scene at the end um, that's just really heartbreaking when he oh. when he dies. Him dying. Oh, man. I mean, oh. it, again, it's understanding who these people are. Michael Mann has uncredited work on the script for a film called Straight Time. It was a Dustin Hoffman film. And it was about a prisoner who got out of jail and, you know, his experience being on the outside. And initially, Dustin Hoffman was actually going to direct it himself. But then, you know, the directing duties were passed off to someone else because Dustin Hoffman wanted to focus on the acting. But, you know, Michael Mann had done all of this work. I mean, he really understands these people just like you said it's i i just and again i mean we see this theme again and again in his work of you know the good guy and, and the bad guy for instance uh, for example collateral right manhunter manhunter another great example yeah i mean he he has a profound understanding of the good guy and the bad guy almost i would say is two sides of the same coin yes it's like he sees them as the same thing but just like a different version and i think that that's what really brings so much richness to this movie i i fully agree i mean and it started the first film that i saw in terms of time you know going back was manhunter that's the earliest film i've seen from michael mann and in that what do we have we have the, this profiler right and he understands he really understands the motivations of a serial killer and if you can understand those motivations if a crime scene can speak to you like that how far are you from being the serial killer. So yeah. it's 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 insane. And also the look of the film. You know, Dante Spinotti, the first film that he worked on with Michael Mann was Manhunter. You can see the stamp of that. Yes. Uh, here as well, because there is that uh, first kind of scene there where Neil McCauley goes to his home, which is like in Malibu. It's this house that's in Malibu. And there's like the window just the whole wall is a window facing the ocean. Yes. And it's all blue. And I just remember shots like that in Manhunter as well. 
Yeah, you have, well, yeah, because uh, we have Will Graham, right? That's the same character that Hugh Dancy played on the TV show Hannibal. Great show. Oh, God, that was such a good show. And, you know, he's chasing Dollarhide, right, who's actually played by none other. <laughs> the Tom Noonan. Correct. Who plays Kelso and Heat, who's the guy who kind of puts together the whole bank job um, for Neil's crew. Yeah, and there's this whole thing that we see in Manhunter and in Heat of these two people being really the only people that understand each other in the world. You know, it's almost like they found, you know, the, their brother. You know, it's like they have this experience. Now, unfortunately, the relationship is going to end in death. There's no other option. None, because it's like these two cannot coexist. Because in as much as they have similarities, there is something fundamentally different you know, in both of them, in terms of a moral compass. Yes. And, you know, and, and where they're headed. I just want to take a second to mention that shot in Heat with, you know, the beach house. Okay, so this is very interesting. That shot is actually based on a painting called Pacific. Now, this is a 1967 painting by Canadian painter Alex Colville. And, you know, in that, you know, it, it's a color shot. And you see, you know, a gun in the foreground on a table, and then there's like a ruler on there. Yeah, and the guy's looking out the window. It's in color. You see the waves. He has no shirt on, but you don't see his head. Mm. And, you know, there was a lot of talk everyone has about it that, you know, like the gun is inevitably part of, of human life. Um, and you just are looking away from it because you don't want to deal with it. You, you want to be in a different place. So I, I guess they're saying that, you know, that there always is some kind of turmoil or trouble. I mean, a gun is pretty specific, you yeah. know. You know, I don't feel like I don't feel like either of us, you know, has like a piece on the table. No. Yeah. But I mean, that's interesting because he's turning away from that to look at like the ocean. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I feel like the ocean is, you know, a little stormy, too. So it's almost like, you know, he's turned his back on one type of turmoil, like his outer turmoil, to look at his inner turmoil. Ooh, okay, that's that's very good. And also in heat, you know, we have the shot completely bathed in blue, which really accentuates the loneliness and, and the sadness that he feels. But that's mm -hmm. something that Neil McCauley has compartmentalized. He has, and yeah. it comes back in a really cool way later when, you know, he's having his his dinner with his crew and they're kind of celebrating and he's watching all the families eating and just laughing and having such a wonderful time. And he's by himself and he actually goes and gets back in touch with Edie, which he didn't expect he was going to do. Um, he kind of thought the Edie thing was a one night thing because he doesn't make connections, mm -hmm. but he couldn't help himself. He, you know, saw this closeness with these other people and he's like, he wants it too. And when he goes into the phone booth to call her, it's blue again. So it's like he's in this blue, you know, loneliness calling out for connection. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, well, I mean, there's so much. There is so much with Neil McCauley. And also, one of the things that I really took away from it is Neil McCauley is the father of this crew. He is the head of the family. Okay, and Chris couldn't be more like his son, mm -hmm. right? And then we also have Chirito, also seems like his son. Definitely, he has, you know, you know, he asks him what he wants him to do. Right, what should I do? Is you it know, a good he, thing? It's like he can't make the decision on his own. He needs them to tell him, 
you know, the only one that seems kind of independent is Trejo over on the side who's just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's almost like the oldest son. He's like, he knows what's up. And it's like, okay, you know, the younger one and the middle one, you know, but I, I know what's going on. I know the score. And that that's what I like so much about the character of Trejo is we don't have that much in terms of dialogue, but his presence, he is very clear. He is always down to business. He's solid. Super yeah. solid. Whatever he says is essential information. The thing that I love the most, and it does, I don't know, I'm awful, it makes me chuckle, is when they're with Wayne Grow in the diner. And, you know, De Niro's like, let's go outside and just settle up with this motherfucker and be done with it. And, you know, De Niro, like, beats him up. And, you know, he's going to kill him. And then Trejo just, like, opens the trunk of the car, and it's, like, lined with garbage bags. <laughs> it's like he's a game show he's host. He's ready. Yeah, it's just like, here we go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's not a question. There's no hesitation. Well, they didn't even really talk about this That's that what we I know love. of. Because, like, Trejo was just like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> and then, like, the next time we see him, he's, like, lined the trunk. He's great. Because he knows what's coming. And, <laughs> you know, this is what's what I love about this team. You know, like, they're criminals, right? So we, I think, expect them to be associated with, like, negative things. Mm-hmm. But actually, what we see here is that they're organized. Yes. They know exactly what they want and mm-hmm. what, you know, they're, what to do. They work really integrated as a team. They each have their own specialty and they respect each other for it. And if it wasn't for, you know, them having to throw this kind of nuclear option person in, Wayne Grow, um, who really is such an agent of chaos in this film... Um, and kind of is just the the person who kicks off the tragedy of it. You know, if it wasn't for that, they'd be fine. Because, oh, they made it. you know, they're, they're locked up with how they do stuff. And Hannah recognizes that from the first time he sees their crime scene. You know, he's like, these guys know what they're doing. And for him, he's almost like excited about that. Because it's like, oh, I got a challenge. You know, and this is the interesting thing to me. I mean, I think we could probably do the entire show just talking about Macaulay and Hannah um, because they are paralleled, which you said in your intro. I mean, everything about them is meant to be juxtaposed against each other. Every interaction that they have with another person, you can find a, a complementary interaction that the other one has. Where you're supposed to say, well, how did Hannah deal with this versus how did Macaulay deal with this? And, you know, yeah, from that first moment that Hannah encounters Macaulay's work, he's excited and kind of like, you know, whipped up for this hunt, you know. And it's really funny we were talking about Manhunter because this is another manhunt going on. And in all the commentaries, Michael Mann just keeps talking about Hannah as being like this hunter. And, you know, he's like a big game hunter, he said at one point. And I love that thought because it is like that. You know, it's like he's like tracking and, and you know, looking at all these clues and trying to find, you know, this big catch that he's looking for. And conversely, that turns Macaulay into the hunted or like the big game 
And he does have some of these qualities of like, I don't know, like a big cat or something, <laughs> you know, where he's quiet. He moves very deliberately. He He's, you know, has like, like preternatural instincts almost that are like beyond human in a way. You know what I mean? It's like a pride of lions is what I think yeah. about because Macaulay's nice, yeah. place you know, well, they make a big point to have that shot where he's with Edie and they're looking out over the city. And it honestly made me think about the Lion King, <laughs> you know. And again, it's like they're all together. Everyone has, you know, their role. They are proud. They are direct. And even the, the dinner scenes, they're like a regular family. Again, going back to that Wayne Grow scene where they meet up in the diner and then De Niro slams Wayne Grow's head off the table in the wall, honestly, that seems like we could have seen that, you know, in some families. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, you know, we are not doing this. We are not having this. And it's like, you put my entire family at risk. You put my family at risk. You are going to die. Like, I don't care. And again, you see how close they are and how much they care for each other. You know, that one shot that they show of, like, one of the other people in the diner, you know, this dude looks, and then, like, Sizemore just gives him the eye, yeah. and that guy fucks off. Yeah, he just <laughs> leans over as if to say, like, this is just between us over here. You can mind your own business. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's just, like, a one millisecond look, but it communicates all it needs to communicate. Yeah. Well, I mean, they work together so strongly in this film, and it's because they had so much preparation. I couldn't even believe the things that they did. They were trained in weapons. Yeah, when you saw De Niro, I mean, training, you know, they showed you him, you know, with his gun and the way he was running around this course. I mean, there was this precision and the movement, and he was fast. He, he was. was so fast. They actually, at the shooting range, used flats and different props and everything to kind of build out what the scene was going to look like when they shot it on site in downtown so that it was kind of choreographed and they knew their movement and where they were going before they actually got there because they were on a tight timeline. Wow. I mean, I just can't even imagine that, like going and just doing this scene in downtown. What I thought was an interesting story was that, you know, they had to actually, for Mother's Day, yeah. shoot, you know, the, the scene... And, you know, there, there was a restaurant nearby and it had these reservations. So, like, people came with their mothers, you know, for, for Mother's Day. And, you know, they're looking out the window and they're seeing all these dudes with guns. Yeah, because, I mean, <laughs> downtown L.A. is really busy during the week. But on the weekend, it's kind of dead. Um, so they were able to shoot, like, I think maybe two different weekends. But one of them was Mother's Day and all these people were just looking out the window watching Al Pacino and Robert De Niro shooting at each other. It's pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, and, yeah, the sound uh, design in that scene is different than any other movie pretty much ever because they wanted to shoot the sound live. So they had, like, microphones, and they were shooting, like, full-load blanks. Wow. That's so loud. I just don't even know how they did it. Because there's that one point where, like, they're in the getaway car, and De Niro shoots out the windshield Oof. inside the car, which I guess was based on a real thing. Yeah, that was actually something that Michael Mann talked about 
And I believe it was something overseas. Where... I think it was in Ireland, like IRA type thing or something. And they, you know, it was the only way they could get out was to shoot out the windshield. But they had these full load blanks and like these automatic weapons. And I know how loud a half load is, okay? A half load is so loud. You know, I had earplugs in. But it, it's just like your ears are still ringing after that. I can't imagine what what a full load would sound like. This is the second week, too. We're talking about full load blanks because <laughs> yeah. that's what Joe Pesci wanted in the exactly. scene where he killed Spider. Yeah. Well, I mean, and they, they're very conscious in this movie of, like, how loud everything is. Because even in that first scene where they blow up the armored truck, that's the whole deal that's going on. It's like Wayne Gross trying to talk to the guy, and the guy's just staring at him. And he's... and uh Sizemore's character, Chirito, says he can't hear you. See that stuff coming out of their ears? You know, like these guys have been deafened. Like their eardrums are blown out from being in that truck when it blew up. Yeah. And I mean, shooting out of the window. I mean, we see that, you know, in the bank robbery scene. And we also see it at the drive-in scene. So, I mean, these guys must just have eardrums of iron, I, I guess. guess so. You know? That's I what mean, just trash. watching it on our TV, it was so loud. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. They like have the sound mixed really loud on the on the on the 4K disc that we have. The sound effects stuff is mixed really loud, in my opinion. Well, it's very terrifying, and that that's what I yeah. like about it. Is it you know it's much different than your average scene, and you get the feeling that you are in the middle of this firefight, you know, and it makes you very uncomfortable. That's what I like about this is that the violence in this is violent it's not enjoyable like you can really appreciate you know the artistry for how it's shot how it's done you know how technical everyone is mm -hmm. you see val kilmer change that clip really fast people think that's incredible he said they used that in like navy training or something wow as a as a <laughs> kind of a challenge like if you can't change your clip as fast as this actor then you need to practice <laughs> Man, it's, uh, yeah, they just have so much with this in terms of the background. They also had, you know, all of the criminals go in and case a bank so that they knew how they would rob it. That's what I really love. <laughs> in a really funny interview, you know, people are like, oh, does people think, like, why is Robert De Niro casing this bank? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, that's, you know, it's just, again, all of that work just really translates, you know, and they also had Chuck Adamson, you know, the police officer that we talked about, he actually was a technical advisor on the film. So he's right there telling you, and he has all this information. I also find it very interesting that Neil McCauley is named Neil McCauley. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow. Like the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, Al Pacino, like, did some sit-ins with them when with some of the real cops when they were doing like interrogations and he I think got to work with them some on how you would do an interrogation and that's like one of the things about his performance that I really have grown to like because I will be honest with you when I first saw Heat it wasn't my favorite movie I was like I don't I don't know I don't, it's a little weird I don't know yeah. right I thought you were crazy I know it, took, <laughs> it just took me a while sometimes it takes me a while to catch on and it's weird because once I do then that thing becomes like my favorite thing and that's kind of where I am right now but it's like with the doors I used to think the doors were terrible and then like I listened to the doors a lot and then I'm like wait no they're not terrible they're actually the best thing ever 
So, you know, it's just a weird thing about me. Like, my <laughs> initial response to something I'm going to love is to be like, eh, I'm not so sure about this. It must be like, <laughs> you know, a deep-seated phobia of commitment or something that I have. Because <laughs> I'm just like, oh, I don't think I can like this. Because once I do, it's going to be the only thing I care about ever. And that's maybe it. But I think part of it also was, I didn't really understand what Pacino was doing. Because... Yeah, when you just watch, if you just watch a clip of him in this, like in a vacuum, it's nuts. It feels crazy, you know, when he's just talking to somebody and then he's like, starts like looking under the table like, oh, is he here? <laughs> or and he's like, who, 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 is there an owl in here? And he says all the stuff. And of course, you can't forget the scene with Hank Azaria where he just is <laughs> sitting there talking about you know, the Ashley Judd character, and he's like, she's got a great ass! <laughs> he just yells it. And Hank is just like, what? <laughs> and there's a great clip of him being interviewed on Howard Stern where he actually says, like, he had no clue that was going to happen. And it was, like, so over the top. He was just like, what? what? <laughs> and he says you can hear him go, like, Jesus. <laughs> but, like... The whole idea of this is that, well, there's two, it's twofold, right? So one of the things is that Al Pacino had this idea that his character was chipping cocaine, which I've never heard this phrase before, I've but I enjoy it either. a lot. Now I say it every day. Um, <laughs> where basically he just does a little just for, you know, to keep himself up. It's almost like he's drinking coffee, but right. it's not strong enough. So he has to do the cocaine instead. And I think we definitely can see that in certain parts of the movie. For example, the POV camera shot behind the wheel of the car where he's chasing Neil McCauley. It's, he's definitely popping off on something <laughs> there. But, like, it also explains, like, some of his weird, like, sweaty kind of activity that he does in this. But also, there's, like, this whole idea that Michael Mann talks about a lot in some of the commentaries that this is like an interrogation technique that the police would use because they want to keep these people kind of on their toes. And like, so they'll just start yelling like completely unexpected and just scare the shit out of the, the person who's being interrogated to kind of just make them blurt something out, you know, because they're just keeping them uncomfortable so they don't know what's going to happen next. And I think Pacino did an unbelievable job of that. And so after I've watched it more and come to understand how great of an unbelievably great, really, of a movie this is, I love the, the Hannah part. And Hannah is really my favorite character, I think, in this movie. You can't help but root for Hannah. I mean, there's a few things from, from what you said that I want to dig into. The first is... It took you a while to like the film because you didn't want to commit to it. I mean, that's one of the core themes of this film is that people don't want to commit to anything. You know, with relationships, they don't want to commit. The only people that want to commit to a relationship in the film are Neil McCauley and Vincent Hanna. No one else wants to commit. Everyone else wants to do something else. You know, and it's the whole thing that happens. I mean, why Neil McCauley goes down is because he decides that he wants to have love and he wants to have, you know, that that partnership that he sees the rest of his crime family has. He sees them, 
you know, with their partners, and it's so wonderful, and it's so happy. And, I mean, he is the father. He is the patriarch of this family. You know, he's the king. Where is my queen? You know, and that's that's really something that I think is is a part of it. And also, this is just tangential, but funny. I mean, talking about the crime family as lions, like a pride of lions, Amy Brenneman is Edie, incredible. Also, I want to point out she has very large hair. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Again, like but, like a big cat. But female lions don't have manes, so it doesn't work. In this family, they do. In this family. I mean, I think he was that's like, great. look at that hair. I think that's part of the attraction, you know? That's hilarious. Neil McCauley's like, look at that mane. Well, I think, you know. <laughs> She's got to be mine. Well, and then we also have, you know, this whole thing that you're talking about with, with, with the cocaine. You know, I mean, I've been chipping pizza for a few years myself. <laughs> I chip some pie. I don't but... know. I think you're an addict. I don't think you can say you're just chipping. <laughs> I'm just chipping, man. I mean, I don't. I don't think you know what chipping is. I've just been chipping a little pie on the side. You know, <laughs> chipping some mozzarella sticks. That's what I chip. But I, I had no idea what that meant. I, I definitely felt like the performance that Al Pacino brought to the table really uh, reminded me in some ways of, you know, what he did in Scarface or what he did in Carlito's Way. In particular, the scene where he's in that underground nightclub, you know, where he goes and he meets Tone Loke. Oh, yeah. Which actually is like a nightclub. It's like some underground nightclub that was underneath a Payless shoe store. Oh, yeah. That was so weird. Like an after hours <laughs> club? Like totally nuts. But 90s the... LA was a weird place, apparently. <laughs> right? It's so wild. I mean, but the way that he kind of charges through that club, like he gets in the elevator, the guy opens, you know, the gate for him, and he is on a mission. He's like a guided missile. And the way that he's walking through that club made me think about the way that he's walking through his own club in Carlito's way. Mm. Okay, when we're he hearing Lady Marmalade. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? So it was like, oh. You know, it's like I could, I was like, voulez-vous coucher avec moi? C'est ça. You know, and I was like, ah. And that's that's where I was, you know, when I was watching him. Because, again, you have, you know, this character that completely has everything under control. I mean, that's a lot of the things that, that we've seen Al Pacino do. You know, again, it's like when he worked with Michael Mann on The Insider, and I adore that movie, too. Great movie. Right? And Dante Spinotti again. You know, it's like, again, it's like Al Pacino is a guy that is wired into everything. And then in this film, he's also wired, which is, <laughs> you know, pretty good. You know, I mean, the connections between these guys, we can actually see starting from the opening of the film. So that was one of the biggest things that, that I did want to mention, okay? So, I mean, the movie opens and we see the train station and it's the end of the line of the train station. OK. And the first shot that we see is we see the train coming at us and then we turn around and we see the train go the rest of the way. Now, this actually mirrors what we see with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro at the end of the film. Mm. When De Niro is dead. Right. We see Al Pacino holding his hand. Oh, my God. What an emotional moment. Can't even go there. Yet, oh, though. I can't either. But then, you know, we get. You know, the reverse of that shot, we have the lights, and then we have the Moby song, God Moving Over the Face of the Waters, you know, which just brings it even higher. I mean, that's, oh my God, my, my skin is tingling. Back at the beginning of the movie, when De Niro gets off the train and walks by the Pieta, you know, and then he goes into the hospital, you know, it's actually, again, foreshadowing the ending of the film. Mm. You see? Because it's like we have, you know, Mary holding dead jesus right and we have actually at the end of our film here in heat we have pacino 
holding on to dead De Niro. Mm, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have made that connection. Right? It's totally crazy. You know, if, and it's like, oh, what? So then I started like, okay, let's dig into this a little bit more. It's almost like the movie's in reverse. Okay? So get this. So the train station is almost like the airport, right? And then we go to the hospital, right? And Pacino has just left the hospital. Yes. You see? You see how this is going around? And guess what happens there, too? Pacino takes Natalie Portman out of the tub where she's attempted suicide and he's, and he's holding, holding her. her. Yeah, just, just like Pieta. Perfect. See? So it's like, oh, my God, this is just like it's everything. And I was like, this is so wild. You know, and we also see, you know, throughout the film, what are the big colors that we see? We see blue, of course. We see red and we see white. These are our three colors going through the film. And I also noticed when they were at the diner and Wayne grows eating the pie, that if very intentionally, there's like a little American flag, like on the ledge <laughs> next to, you know, Wayne grow That's when he's ridiculous. eating the pie. And I'm like, this is this is pretty funny. You know, it, again, it's like, you know, hot and cold, hot and cold. The entire opening of the movie, it's like we're seeing heat, right? We have, you know, Kilmer. He's buying these explosive charges. We've got heat. We have Pacino and Diane Venora making love. We've got heat. We've got Pacino in this steamy shower, right? You know, we've got heat. You know, it's like that we have like Natalie Portman. She's frantic that her father won't show oh, up. Yeah. Right. And, and then it's like you're like, oh, what? And then Pacino picks up his gun from the table. There's a, there's like a shot of the gun actually pointed at the camera. OK, so it makes you think about, you know, the De Niro shot that we talked about. Yeah. When he puts the he's put the gun down on the table. Right. But it's pointed the other way, I think. See, it's like it's all this is together. <laughs> Everything th is like mirrored with those two. It's incredible. And I think De Niro might also put down car keys. I think he might also put down car keys, but the gun is like, you know, I feel like the big thing, unless, you know, if we think about car keys, you know, again, that that's like civilization and I don't know. It's Internal like a home. combustion engines. <laughs> Who the hell knows? It could also be just like, again, it's like, you know, more keys you have. I think this was in Sex, Lies, and Videotape. How's that for super random? <laughs> like the more keys you have, it's the more things that you have. You know, it's Weird. like the more attachments that you have. Mm, interesting. Right. So it's like if you have that in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, okay. So do you think we should just randomly during the show just shout something out? Yeah, do to it. To keep the audience on, on their toes. <laughs> I'll I'm back joking. you up. I'll back you up. No, you should do it. You should do it. No, do I'm just trying to throw everybody off, make sure they're, you know, <laughs> don't feel comfortable. All right. I mean, uh, you know, I... <laughs> I'm like, now I want to do now it, but I'm I like, threw, we telegraphed it. I'm now like, I threw you off. You threw me off. because It's I was, good. It's good. You got me on the edge. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. So so here's another one. This is totally wild. So in Diane Venora's bedroom, okay, on the wall, there's this enormous photograph of what looks like a dead man, a dead older man. He's got his mouth open. Her house is weird. Yes. Anyway. Yes. It's totally crazy. It's very cold. Like there's, you know, a lot of cold imagery too, I think. Like, I feel like the blue of things is cold. Like, Neil's house is very cold. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, you also have, like, the, the juxtaposition of of drugs, right? So we have Vincent Hanna that's got to keep going, keep going, keep going, right? He wants to keep this angst in his heart. He wants to have this fire in his belly, right? He's, yeah, he says exactly that. Right? And then you have Diane Venora. 
I may be stoned on grass and Prozac, right? As soon as he doesn't stay for breakfast at the beginning, she pops a pill, comes downstairs, totally fucked up. She does such a good job with that. When, like, Natalie Portman is, like, trying to talk to her, she's like, what, honey, what? Yeah. You know, and then we have more stuff with art in the house, in, in the Diane Venora house, okay? So we also have, um, up on the wall, we have a picture of a woman, and it's, like, the bottom half, like, where her mouth is, is, like, torn off. It's drawn that way or painted that way. And it's like, okay, you can't speak. Mm-hmm. And that reminds you of, like, Natalie Portman, because she has so much anxiety about her father, and she's got a lot of feelings. She's keeping her mouth shut. She isn't talking about it. And then we also have a painting up on the wall that's like a face but it looks like two faces in one right so again that makes us think about macaulay and hannah so it's like we have just all of this stuff everything that's in this film is intentional and and that is always the mark of a fantastic filmmaker michael mann i mean we've watched how many featurettes we did the commentary and he always brings something new every single time well what i think i really love about it and you know looking at everything as a whole is that clearly this is an amazingly written film yes the script is phenomenal yeah no question and we actually watched la takedown also we did and there is a ton of similarity so i think you said that they said he said about 40 percent of it just kind of got cut and pasted right into the heat script <laughs> wouldn't that feel good like if you're working on like i got 40 percent, guys <laughs> you're like i'm already almost halfway there yeah <laughs> um and you can see that but it's such a different movie because of all of you know having the budget to get pacino and de niro oh my which god is really the perfect casting yes because it's kind of like art imitating life you know like you you're trying to cast two guys to play these two people who are at the absolute top of their field and so you pick two guys who are at the absolute top of the field Mm -hmm. of acting um (laughs) who are always kind of placed in opposition to each other or just put as compared to each other um because they're both like these amazing dramatic actors you know at least partially italian in robert de niro's case um full italian in pacino's case like they are similar in so many ways but they're also super different with the way that they come at different projects and getting them to play this best criminal ever and best cop ever are is just you couldn't do better than that so having the budget to be able to do that and then having the budget to have like a dante spinati behind the camera Mm -hmm. and just being able to add all of this extra element of visual storytelling that can't really be in la takedown like the la takedown shoot it shoot was like 19 days or something they said which is insane it's like they basically took the entire movie of heat and shot it in 19 days um (laughs) that's crazy (laughs) i couldn't imagine that and i mean there are differences between the two films notable differences sure sure but i think you can definitely see the germ of what he was going for absolutely and even he said like you know it was kind of like a practice run almost um, to be able to do that and then to take what worked and then build on that to make it become heat. You know, this feels like a second draft. Like it's fleshed out in all the right ways. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, with having a budget and having it be a feature, they're able to do a lot more, you know, with, with the written material. But I love that. I love that you started with, like, this really perfect script. All of that parallel structure is built into the script. Um, and then you layer that with excellent actors, just really the perfect choices, especially for Macaulay and Hannah. You couldn't do better. But then everybody else, too. I mean, everybody in this movie is great. It's hard to say because, I mean, you know, again, we're dealing with two of the greatest actors ever uh, in Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. And it, it, it's just like with Robert De Niro, I, I mean, this is one of the top, 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 top ones for me. This is my number one Robert De Niro performance. I Maybe think... Deer Hunter. Maybe Deer Hunter takes it. I got to watch Deer Hunter again. I haven't seen Deer Hunter in a long time. Yeah. So I will have to put a pin in that. However... Just based on, you know, the fact is we just watched Goodfellas because we did Goodfellas last week and his performance of Jimmy Conway Phenomenal. is unbelievably great. He, yeah. And yet we go to watch this this time and I was like blown away by how good he is. And it's such a different thing than what Al Pacino does. You know, both of them have a great depth to mm. their performance. Yes. But whereas I feel like Pacino is kind of more open about that, Robert De Niro, I feel like he plays things pretty close to the vest. And you just can see, like, how much is there, but he's protective of it. Like, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well. No, it makes this perfect sense. just what I think when I'm watching it. Because when you look at the scene between them, which I'm sure we have a million things to say about, you know, it's... I feel that in that scene, Hannah keeps being the one to like offer information and kind of open up like he's trying to open Macaulay up. But De Niro kind of just locks it down. He has everything kind of locked in place and he's not going to give you everything. He's going to keep some of it. And I really love that about this performance. It's perfect to me the way that he does it. It's so good. In that first scene that we have with Edie and Macaulay in the Kate Mandolini restaurant, incredible. And it's also fun to note that Kate Mandolini restaurant is also where the big Pacino scene happens. So really, it's like Neil Macaulay, when he's reaching out in this film, is going to the Kate Mandolini restaurant. <laughs> That's really you know, it's Yeah, but it's like that first scene that we see with, you know, Edie and with Neil Macaulay is incredible because he is guarded. He doesn't want to talk. You know, he's sharp. And then he realizes, oh, my God, I'm dealing with a real human being that's interested in me. What the hell am I doing? He gets it together and he opens up. And that is what really, really gets you, you know, with this character because he is so locked down that he yeah. lets someone in. But he surprises himself with that, you mm -hmm. know. He's when they're having that conversation on the balcony, you know, he said she he says, you know, I'm I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. Right. Which I think he's lying to himself. Absolutely. Big time. And, you know, the fact is Edie says I am lonely. And it's like her openness is so different for him that I think that it's the that's what reaches out to her from him is like 
the ability to have someone who you can actually be yourself with, who you can actually show who you are to, you know, but he still can't do that all the way because he is a criminal and he's afraid of what she will do when she finds out. And it just makes you really feel for him because he is very sad and very alone and it's by choice. You know, he says he has to be like that and he says it's part of it, you know, but he is starting to realize that he's at the point in his life where it's not okay. He can't be doing this anymore. I'm sure that it developed as a protective measure, you know, because this is a guy who has been in and out of, you know, institutions like in jail and been a criminal his whole life, from my understanding, and he doesn't want to go back because, you know, that's not a good life to have, but he doesn't know what else to do, you know, to make money and to make a living. So he just kind of, like every criminal in every movie, wants to have, like, the big score where he can, you know, go and be normal. But, you know, obviously that can't happen. And part of that is that he's his own worst enemy, you know? Well, we want him to make it as the audience. Even though we know he's done terrible things, we've seen those things, he's done cold calculated things you know at the beginning of the film when Wangro kills one of the guards with the truck you know it's like De Niro gives the okay for this man that the security guard is just trying to walk away for him to be killed and it's because he's protecting himself he's protecting his family but he doesn't have any any feelings outside of that and it's such a difficult film because it shows you that when Neil McCauley does open up and tries to have more feelings it really gets him because when he has the scene with Vincent and Hannah, yes, he's very locked down, but he does give up one piece of crucial information that he has a woman. And that is what Hannah sees at the airport. He sees Edie alone in the car and he goes, aha, aha. That is the most, oh, Jesus, that's so heartbreaking. There's so many heartbreaking moments in this. When you have De Niro, he's killed Wayne he's gotten out, you know, he's ready to go, he's getting in the car with her, she sees him, she smiles, he smiles, then he sees Pacino, it drops, he acts like he doesn't know Edie, and he walks away. And this is him, you know, implementing this doctrine that he's been talking about the entire film. But he you, doesn't want to. Oh, he doesn't want to at all. At I all. Mean, who would? I don't know, but it also goes back to the animal thing that, I, you know, I've thought about a lot, where... You know, if you have pets or something, if, if a pet gets hurt or, you know, really is starting to die and they know it, a lot of times they, like, go away from home to die because they kind of want to save you from it somehow or something. And I feel like that's almost part of it, too. Like, he didn't want to have the showdown happen in front of Edie. Like, he didn't want her to have to see it because whether she sees him kill Hannah or Hannah kill him... He's not coming back. You know, he's not coming back from that in her eyes. Well, Um, he also doesn't want to make her an accomplice. He doesn't want to bring her into this crime. Doesn't want to make her culpable. So it's, yeah, I I mean, oh, it's so hard. One thing I do want to point out from L.A. Takedown to Heat, okay, and I am so glad they made this change in Heat, is that in L.A. Takedown, Wayne Grove, fucking kills Neil McCauley. It doesn't work. Oh my God. Like I was so pissed. I was like, no, no. 
Like, in, also in L.A. Takedown, Edie does not go with him. Yeah. I it Oh, it's so wild. Such a huge improvement in oh, some yeah. of these things. But it has to be, the end to me has to be the face-off between Hannah and Macaulay. It can't be Wayne Grow. I mean, I was already pissed off enough. When Macaulay like turns out, you know, turns off to go get Wangro. Right. I'm just like, just leave, just go. Like you don't have to do this. And again, he's going against his own doctrine, which is just drop everything and go. He's not dropping everything. He has not dropped everything multiple times. You know, he took Chris to that uh, doctor, which is Jeremy Piven. Mm-hmm. He, and then he's trying to make sure, like, Chris is taken care of and everything's okay there. Then he's like, okay, I'm going to go. He goes to get Edie to take her with them. And then he goes to get Wangro and tie up that loose end or whatever. But it's not really tying up a loose end. He just wants to kill him because he's pissed. He does want to kill him because he's pissed. But I also feel, again, it has to do with family. Trejo was part of his family. And because of what Wangro did, he actually suspected Trejo. Macaulay went ready to kill Trejo. And he did kill him, but as a mercy killing because Trejo wanted it. But it's like this little fucking prick. I mean, he caused so much trouble. Well, and he, you know, he wanted to kill him at the beginning of the movie. So right. the entire movie's kind of been a journey to actually get rid of this bastard. But I just feel that him choosing to do that rather than to go ahead and take the charter plane, you know, that's waiting there, like he had plenty of time to get there and do it, is not normal. You know, it's not him following procedure. Well, here's this. I'm going to throw this to you. And this is, I, I just thought of this right now. Wingro is so horrible. Okay. He is a cockroach. He would survive a nuclear war. That fucker would still cause trouble for you. I mean, I get it, but I think that it's up, it's on the table that Macaulay and Edie could have escaped. It's I've, I've always felt that. I've always felt that. I'm with you, and you can see it on De Niro's face. And this is very interesting because Robert De Niro and Michael Mann actually went out and they just kept shooting that so they could get that change just right because they, they really wanted it to be that we understood, you know, what happened. And we talked about this in Goodfellas. Robert De Niro is fantastic with expression. His eyes give you everything. His face. He is in complete control at all times. Yeah, he's a perfect... He's like one of the best nonverbal actors there is. Yes. And it's it's done... It's done so, so well. It, it's... Oh, I, There's I, a lot of really good nonverbal acting in this, though, because I would argue that, that the scene you talked about with Tom Sizemore... Like, leaning over and looking at that guy is, like, a really brilliant moment of nonverbal acting as well. I love, and again, I mean, I just have to bring it up again. Trejo opening the trunk is oh, so yeah. good. It's so good. Like, it's like, I mean, again, it's like, you know, you watch this movie enough times, you know, like, when the different beats are coming. Just if you look at the movie again, next time Trejo opens the trunk, like, really enjoy it. <laughs> Just love it. It's so good. Again, it's like a game show. It's like, here we go. What's behind door number two? Your fucking death. You know? <laughs> it's like, he's, oh, he's perfect. He's perfect. Yeah. I mean, Wayne Grow, man. Wayne Such Grow. Such a slime ball. I mean, oh. the whole movie couldn't happen without Wayne Grow. 
because he's the absolute most horrible and his kind of insane chaotic bullshit is what sets everything off well when we first see Wangro, i think it's very important to point this out Wangro is coming out of the bathroom and putting his shirt on and yet he still has a coffee cup because he goes and then like demands a refill of coffee yeah and it's just like in a what? real jackass kind of way oh too. he's a prick I feel like he's being rude again but i mean props to kevin gage oh my god kevin gage took this character so far and he was so committed this is one of the most detestable characters ever put to film yeah he's horrible and then you know when he's with the prostitute oh oh i can't even watch that scene i'm just like oh my god i just i kind of look for anything i'm like is there anything on the phone what's on instagram you know what i mean (laughs) you just have to like take a mental health break yeah somebody like one of our posts like what's (laughs) up you know i don't know oh my god but a fun fact i guess kevin gage got arrested for growing medical marijuana after this movie and when he was in prison, everybody called him Wayne Grove. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. And I also want to bring up the fact that Kevin Gage was not the first choice for Wayne Grove. It was actually Ted Levine. And so it's like Ted Levine wanted to be Bosco. And so then you have Kevin Gage that comes in to be Wayne Grove. And when I first saw the film, not even joking, by the way, I was so confused because I thought that Wayne Grow and Bosco were the same character. I was like, these guys look so much alike. I'm like, holy shit, he's a cop. And he's also this guy, you know, that was was in on, well, I don't know what the hell happened. But I, I think I, I gathered later on it was a heist. You know what I mean? Some type of crime. You know, it was just like this guy leads this dual life. That's hilarious. Yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea who these people were. I mean, one of the other characters I want to bring up is John Voight. You know, his character is Nate. Wow. You know, that, that his look is like based on Eddie Bunker. You know, that was a, a real life criminal. And then he took to writing. You know, we've seen him in other films, you know, along the way. And, you know, it, it's just like such a good performance from John Voight. Now, John Voight was a criminal in this movie, Runaway Train, which is incredible which came out in the 80s. It's a it's a monster of a performance. You know, he's with Eric Roberts and Rebecca De Mornay, and I actually think Danny Trejo was in it too, and Eddie Bunker, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, this is a whole other discussion, but it was kind of based on a, a story from uh, Kurosawa. I think it was updated. Runaway Train, great movie. Anyway, so John Voight, you know, with Runaway Train, wasn't necessarily interested in it because he was playing a hardened criminal. And, you know, then it was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to do it. And with this, with Heat, what he said to Michael Mann was, look, there are a lot of real guys out here that'll bring you the real thing. That'll be a lot better than me. And Michael Mann said to John Voight, well, if I do that, then I wouldn't get to work with you. And so John Voight, you know, was touched. He's like, oh, this is awesome. So he went and he did it. And I have to say the John Voight performance is amazing because, again, it's that familial thing. I actually feel like Nate is like Neil's father. Yeah, I see that. And he's also another guy. He's They have similar manner. You know, they're both very business mm-hmm. about everything they do, very professional, and uh, just kind of locked down again. I mean, like, you know, you don't really know what Nate feels. 
you can see when he knows people are making bad decisions, he's kind of like, oh boy, here we go. Yeah. But he knows he can't, you know, change it. But he's he does an awesome job, really. Yeah, he's so good in this. And when we have that final scene where he talks on the phone, you know, with Macaulay, and he's like, well, he's like, I, I got to tell you, you know, where Wayne Grow is. He's like, you probably don't care. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I don't care. You know what I mean? He's like, okay, you know. And it, it's like, goodbye, brother, adios, amigo, something like that. Ugh. Again, I feel like, you know, John Voight telegraphs, he knows damn well, he knows damn well that Robert De Niro is going to go and kill this guy and he's going to torch his future. But John Voight was like, he asked me to do it. I'm going to tell him I did it, you know, because it, it just, you know, it's what he asked me to do. It's a really, really, really well done thing there because again it's not really spoken it's not like you know it's like john voight goes to robert de niro i love you brother or something you know yeah, it's like they don't yeah like they don't have to because it's like that's not the kind of person they are mm -hmm. yeah well, we have that again i mean people that are in the film don't need to have you know a, an hour of screen time to get their story across we already talked about trejo but what we haven't talked about much is chris we haven't talked about Chris and his wife. Yeah, Chris Shaherless, also based on a real person. Mm -hmm. Real name of a real person, even. I've um, never heard that name before. This is yeah, new to me. Yeah, it's a different yeah. name. Um, but I think he was like a younger guy that went through a lot of prisons and stuff and juvenile detention centers and things like this. Um, but yeah, so Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. I mean, that is so understated and that's what i like i mean we know we know this guy you know he's doing business at the beginning he has that wonderful brief scene with martin ferrero when he's buying the explosives and again it's not spoken it's just a transaction you can tell the martin ferrero knows damn well that there is something shady <laughs> going down but he's just doing what he has to do yeah just to move it along Val Kilmer knows what he's doing is bogus, and he's hoping that no one says anything, no one gets caught. They just, they act like it's business as usual, but you can tell in their faces, both of them know what's really happening here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's great. I mean, and the, the whole thing with Chris is another person who's his own worst enemy. Mm -hmm. Like, he, you know, doesn't know how to do anything except be a criminal, but even though, you know, they get a lot of money, like, he gets a lot more money than, you know, a normie who doesn't do crime. Right. He just gambles it. So he just ends up back where he started. And it's kind of like that's the whole metaphor of his entire life because he did that when he was a kid, too, because he would get in trouble. He would go to, you know, juvenile detention, which is a very bad place to be. Um, they keep calling it gladiator academies like chino yeah <laughs> like tracy and chino and it's basically where you learn to be like a hardened criminal yeah when you're a kid and you learn this so that you know when you keep going through the system over and over and over you know how to handle yourself and like that's the whole thing with him like he wants out but he can't get out because he only knows about like this churn that he does, you know, gets money, gambles away the money, needs more money, commits a crime, gets more money, 
you know, gambles the money away, needs more money, commits a crime, and he's just doing this over and over. It's like this vicious cycle that he cannot pull out of. No, he, he can't get out. And, I mean, he's there with Ashley Judd, and, you know, Charlene is just a really, really, really interesting character because what Michael Mann talked about was that, again, they interviewed all of these people. They interviewed women that actually had been prostitutes and they had to do what they had to do to make ends meet and that that's how it went and then they went and they changed their lives and they became stockbrokers they became big in real estate their lives completely changed and you wouldn't even know that these women ever were prostitutes ever were involved in a life of crime and when you have you know charlene you know i mean again when you see ashley judd in this film you don't think crime you don't think that this is a person that, that's had a hard life. I mean, well, you know, she's had a hard life because she's been with Chris, you know, and really it, you feel like she's pretty much a single mother to begin with, with Dominic, because he's never around. Yeah. And, you know, they can't get ahead. And also Chris, you know, again, I mean, he's got a lot of problems and he's got a hair trigger temper. I mean, when he jumps over the railing and gets in her face, Jesus Christ, it's I jump. terrifying, yeah, I, I mean. Yeah, I was like, oh, all right. And then he, like, just throws something and smashes some shit and leaves. I mean, this this is a scary guy, but she is able to face it because she has worked the streets. She has had to deal with pimps, johns, horrible people. And so it's like, even when you see her being threatened, I mean, hard, like when Robert De Niro comes in to the hotel room, you know, after she's been with Hank Azaria and he charges in and he knocks all the hangers off and it looks like he's going to hit her and it looks like he's going to call her all these names. You know, she keeps it together. You know, I mean, she gets pissed off. You know what I mean? But she doesn't really seem terrified. It's like she's numb because this is business as usual for her. Yeah, she's... Oh, she's so good in this. Yeah, she's very impressive mm -hmm. as a character and she's really different from any of the other people in this i mean it's interesting to compare the three kind of main women i guess that we see which would be the ashley judd character charlene diane venora and um amy brenneman you know because they're so different i mean yeah. like amy brenneman's character Edie, is almost like the polar opposite of charlene you know she has like this, you know, Appalachian accent to kind of make her seem like a fish out of water a little bit or like she's innocent because she comes from, you know, a place where this stuff isn't happening. Mm -hmm. She's very talented and very smart, but she also is a good person and doesn't understand all of the other behaviors that these people are engaging in. And then you have Diane Venora who is kind of a completely like messed up person yeah like she has a house she has a child she has like you know all the stability that people are looking for in life but she is completely mentally unstable yeah and she's only able well, she's not even able to do that. I was going to say she's only able to look after herself, but she's not. Yeah. She thinks she is, you know, by, by getting wasted, you know, and checking out. But it doesn't help her. It doesn't help the relationship that she has with Vincent Hanna. It sure as hell does not help anything with her poor daughter. Yeah. I mean, that story, oh, my God. Like, you can just feel, you know, the neglect on all sides. And you have Vincent Hanna 
who is who she goes to when she goes and she commits suicide. She does it in his hotel room because she feels like he is the only one that really gives a shit and is present enough to do something. You know, again, I mean, we have the chipping cocaine situation, which is happening. And, you know, maybe she's privy to it. Maybe she's not. But, I mean, Vincent Hanna has a very strong moral compass and he cares. And we get that from the very beginning. You know, he goes to Diane Venora as, the, as like, you know, is the father going to show up? Is the son of a bitch going to not show up again like last time? Yeah, he truly cares about about Natalie Portman's character. He actually really does. Mm-hmm. I mean, and even though he doesn't care about much except for, you know, pursuing his target, um, he does any humanity that he does have. He does kind of save that for people in need. Yes. I mean, that's the whole thing with him. And that's something that, you know, Michael Mann kept coming back to talk about, you know, when you do look at like the fundamental difference between um, Hannah and Macaulay, it is that Hannah is not a sociopath. Like he does care about other people and Macaulay only cares about a very specific group of people, which are his own people. You know, he, when they're having the shootout, he doesn't care who is getting shot as long as it's not one of his guys. He's only protecting his guys. When they're in the grocery parking lot, you know, he's just spraying bullets. He doesn't care if he hits a bystander because he isn't concerned with a bystander. Whereas Hannah would never do that. You know, Hannah's big terrifying moment of having to take a leap outside himself is when Chirito grabs the little girl oh my god yeah to use as like a human shield that's so awful and at that point Hannah is faced with the decision do I try to take a shot that you know and get Chirito and risk hurting this child or do you know she may just die anyway and he'll just kill me so he takes the shot and he takes down Chirito. Um, but I, you can see the fear on his face when he has to make that decision because he doesn't want to put someone else in danger, especially a child or somebody who's weaker because he really cares about people. Well, Chirito, that character is interesting because he seems very solid. That's one of the things that I would say. You know, the first appearance of Chirito in the film is he's driving the truck and, you know, Wayne Grow gets in and Wayne Grow is like, yeah, you know, if this goes good, you know, maybe I'll go again. And he just keeps talking and he just tells him to shut up. Yeah. And then like Wayne Grow gets all angry, you know, because he's got like they talk about it. he's got like this low self-esteem. He's got a lot of problems. You know what I mean? So it's like he wants to show you that you can't mess around with him, you know, and Chirito could give a fuck. You yeah, know what I mean? He's That's... just here to do the job, get it done, move to the next thing. So you think, you know, it's because of his association with Macaulay that it's a similar situation where all he cares about is the job, but he cares about, you know, his family. And, okay, he cares about his family, but it's like he has, you know, a daughter. He has a wife. And, you know, as the movie goes on, it's through other people up until the point where he picks up the child as the human shield, which is like, okay, I'm fucking done with Chirito. (laughs) You know, but it's like we also have, you know, with Tone Loke, you know, when they're at, you know, the nightclub. 
And, you know, it's like he says that, you know, Chirito just was talking a lot about how he didn't have anything going down and he was making a big deal out of it. You know, and that's how, you know, Tone Loke was like, I knew he had something going down because he kept telling me he had nothing going down. That doesn't sound like the calm, cool, collected character I would expect. <laughs> Do you understand? This is a guy that seems nervous, like he talks too much, like he's just, you know, he's fucking up a lot. But through the lens of the film, the way that we see him, for me, it's a character that seems solid. And then as we go through, it just keeps chipping away. And we see that this guy's a fucking coward. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. This guy is a coward. And you couldn't see Chris Chaherlis. You couldn't see Trejo. I mean, I, I really don't think you could see Neil McCauley pick up a fucking child. I don't I, think they would care. I oh, think they man, would do you it think that I'll do it? All, all oh, my God. I guess then just because I didn't see it, I guess that that's my thing is that I think that would happen. But you're probably right. We're dealing with criminals and that is what's Neil so good McCauley about the movie. wouldn't pick up Chirito's child because that's part of the family. Right. He wouldn't pick up Chris's child but if it's some other person like those people don't exist to them. They don't, they just don't care. No, I, I guess you're you're right. It, it's just I guess it's, it's just my my selective thought process and again because we're faced with a film much like Goodfellas where you have these people that you're rooting for in a way, even though you see them doing horrible oh, sure. things. And you're like, oh, you know, they rob banks, but yeah, the money's insured and everybody's okay. And it's like, wait a minute, John, at the first scene, the movie, the robbery, they kill those guys. And it's like, okay, they kill those guys because they could testify against them. But no, that doesn't make it okay. Like it's, this movie is so well written that I feel like, you were rooting. I don't even know how it's possible. I'm rooting for everybody. I'm rooting for the criminals. No, you I'm rooting for are. the cops. And I'm like, the only person I'm not rooting for is Wayne Grow. Wayne like, anybody that kills Wayne Grow is the best person in the film. And like when De Niro blows him away, like he shoots him in the heart. And then, he, yeah, look at me, look at me, like boom, right in the heart. And then he does him in the head. Like, I mean, I, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm also not really rooting for Diana Venora because I think she sucks. But like, <laughs> Well, they have that fantastic scene, and that again, it's at the hospital. Not Diane Venora, but Justine. You know what I mean? No, no, no of course. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I just. It's wanna, not personal. I keep calling yeah. her Diane Venora just because I think of. I, I just know her from like Shakespeare and things sure, like this. Sure, sure. So I just think of like that's Diane Venora, but I'm talking about Justine. I think you know Diane Venora is not a scumbag, to no, my knowledge. She's fantastic. She's <laughs> such a good actor. And again, that scene, you know, like I said, the two things that always stand out for me with her are at the beginning when she's fucked up and she has the newspaper and like, you know, Natalie Portman's like, hey, hey, you know, and she's like, it's perfect. And then the other one is that incredible scene that she has with Pacino at the hospital where they literally say that they can't be together. It's not going to work out. But somehow, even though they say that. You kind of, at least me, I feel like they're going to stay together anyway, and they do care about each other. It's it's such a tender scene, and it's such a sea change, because, again, this is one of those scenes that we get from Vincent Hanna, where it, it's, it's like, it's really about what's happening in the moment with me personally. It's not about the job. And then guess what happens? Yeah. He gets paged. Well, you know what's funny is that I think that we're definitely supposed to, again, compare and contrast mm -hmm. that scene with... So that's our final scene with Justine and Hannah. 
And we're supposed to compare that with the final scene between Edie and Macaulay. Yeah. And the final scene with Edie and Macaulay is that they desperately want to be together still, but they're not going to be. And with Hannah and Justine, it's that they really don't want to be together anymore, but maybe they're going to be, you know? So it's kind of like, you know, the whole thing that Hannah's just being honest with her Like, he's not going to change. He knows he's not going to change. He knows that that the job is always going to be, like, the number one thing for him. And that he's told her this many times in the movie. And, you know, even though he loves her and he wants it to work, he just doesn't really think it is going to. So it's really interesting to me because you do see a potential end of a relationship here, which is the same thing that we see with De Niro's character and Brenneman's character. This is the end of their relationship. But in their case, it's like super tragic because they want to be together so bad. Whereas with Justine and Hannah, it's like tragic because they can't be the type of people that they need to be for it to work. That's very well said. That that's very very well said. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a great great scene because there's so much emotion, you know, because uh Natalie Portman's character has commit has tried to commit suicide, Lauren is the daughter's name. So she's, you know, in the hospital and both Pacino and Venora are like so messed up at that moment because of this. And they're, you know, trying to figure out what they're supposed to do together here. Because, like, they're married. It doesn't just, like, you know, this relationship that Macaulay and Edie have, where they're kind of at the beginning. This is, like, they're these two are at the end mm-hmm. of a marriage, you know. And it's the third marriage for God. for Hannah at this point. And he can't really stay married yeah. because of the job. And that's something that I've heard about in real life is a big deal. Like a lot of these cops who work these really harsh type of crimes, like major crimes and things like that, they have a really hard time having a family life because what the things that they see are kind of psychologically damaging and it makes it difficult. Well, something else that I think adds to the authenticity of this is when they have the technicians you know, the, the police, I mean, these are actual LAPD oh, and yeah. sheriff's department people that they have, you know, in these speaking parts at these crime scenes. So it's like we're fully immersed in, in police culture. And also it was crazy because they talked about that there is there was some wine bar in Los Angeles that had a special room. And on one night of the week, it would be all the police officers and their wives. And another night of the week, it would be all the criminals and their wives. Yeah. And the, the, you know, cops and, you know, robbers, respectively, were able to kind of sneak into those rooms. So the cops were with other cops and the <laughs> robbers were with these other robbers. So they, they got to see how these interactions, you know, worked, how, you know, the, this family, you know, functioned. And we have the dinner scene with the cops also. So it's like we had talked about, we've talked extensively about the dinner scene with the robber family. Yes, we have. Um, but there is also that dinner scene with the cops 
um, which Pacino gets called away from. Mm-hmm. Again, he he's always getting called away well, by the job. The music in this is just wonderful throughout. I mean, there's so many things, you know, the Moby music. I mean, we could go on and on. But when we're talking about the dinner scene, what stands out for me is with the police, there's actually, you know, Venora and Pacino are dancing together. And they're playing B.B. King's The Thrill is Gone. Mm. You know, and it's just like, it's perfect. You know, it's just like, this is it. This is, you know, the the end of the line for these people. This is their last dance, you know, if you will. It's, oh, it's just so well structured that every time you think you're settled in this film, you're not. You know, there's a crime. You know, there's a robbery, a murder, a breakup. I mean, of course, <laughs> this is a very funny scene. We have Ralph. You remember this? Ralph. You know, we have Justine and we have Hannah. And, you know, Hannah finds out that Justine has been with this man, Ralph, and he's in the house. And Ralph is played by Xander Berkeley, fantastic actor Excellent. once again. Yeah. And he actually played Wayne Grow in L.A. Takedown. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's just like this really really great scene again it's it's what i like again is it's not what you would expect like you know al pacino plays it really close to the vest is he pissed that you know his wife has cheated on him yes is he mad at this man (laughs) this man ralph you know that's xander berkeley's name He's trying not to be. Yeah, he's right? like trying not to blame him. It's he like, knows Ralph. It's not Ralph who did this. Ralph's like, look, I, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. And he wants to leave. And like Pacino just keeps yelling at him. No, sit down, Ralph. You know? <laughs> and he's just mad that he's watching his TV set. He's like, you can sleep with my wife, but you cannot watch my TV set. <laughs> he takes the TV set. And the best is he takes it and he just kicks it out his fucking car door in the street. And you, I, Georgia was so good. She goes, I could totally see that happening. You know, <laughs> like, definitely good. Yeah. Like we could see that and go, oh, okay. All right. In LA. I mean, I'm surprised. Like I haven't seen somebody kicking a TV out of their car already. Yeah. Oh, oh, here's another one. TVs. This is another thing that's tied in. At the beginning of the film, uh, witnessing the robbery, there's a homeless man with a television set. Yes. Yes. Now, this is a real homeless man that was around in Los Angeles at the time, and he had a television set, but he needed power, of course. And what people would do is they would actually just throw an extension cord out the window of their place so he could plug in and watch TV. Yeah, that was pretty nice. It's so nice. Yeah, I thought that was really funny. I mean, the authenticity in this is, like, crazy. Well, the parts of town. I mean, so that's that's something we talked about earlier. So Michael Mann drove around with the commander of the LAPD at the time, and they did this for about six months, and they actually went out on calls together, all kinds of calls. And, you know, it was actually to the point where, you know, the LAPD commander, they interviewed him, and he was like, yeah, I kind of saw Michael, you know, as a partner. You know, I had an extra gun. You know, I would, you know, give it to him. And we were like, holy shit. That is a, a little much for me. But, I mean, like, I'm kind of concerned about that living in this town. The LA... That was fine. Like, oh, he's going to do a ride along. Let's make sure he has a piece. 
Yeah, the LAPD commander at the time was Thomas Elfmont, and one of the features they actually showed, you know, him. I mean, hell, he might even be in the movie, you know, in, in one of the roles. I think I he's uh, the desk clerk at the hotel. I there believe. we go. I could be wrong, but I think that's right. I thought the same thing, but I wasn't sure. So, yeah, it, it's, again, all of these people, not only do they bring the stories to the table, but they're involved in the actual filmmaking process, whether it be in front of the screen, behind the screen. Everyone is there. And I think that's what makes it so true. And again, you have, you know, this this amazing caliber of actors. And oh, we haven't even talked about Drucker, Michael T. Williamson. Oh my God, how or do we West not... Study? Who oh my played, God, uh, Casals, I think is his name. So those are two of the other cops, and they're both great. We also haven't talked about another one of my favorite actors in anything, Dennis Haysbert, or William Fickner. These people are great. Or great. we did Noonan. We touched on Noonan. We yeah. did talk about Noonan, who is one of the weirdest people. I think <laughs> he's so good. He's, he's so great. Good. Yeah. He's great because he's so odd. Like I mean, he's playing always an odd character, and it works. Like I believe that guy's weird. Like he's if perfect. I met him in real life and he was just normal, I'd be like super thrown off because I just would expect him to be very strange, but. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. They populated this movie with some amazing, amazing actors. And Michael T. Williamson, yes. the way he got the job, we we heard on, like, this amazing, like, featurette, was that, like, Al Pacino and Michael Mann, like, called him up, and they're like, we can't believe you didn't get nominated for uh, an Oscar for Forrest Gump, you know, so we want you to be in this. Yeah. And they had already hired another person and they were like, they paid that guy off so they could get Michael T. Williamson in instead. And like, that was just really, I mean, where do we sign up to know people like that? Because I really need that. <laughs> I'm right with you. I mean, it's so incredible. Michael T. Williamson had said he was going fishing. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was just like, he was just really surprised by this. And he's just... He's such a good actor. And when you think about Forrest Gump, you think about Bubba, and then you think about Drucker. Drucker is such a good character. I mean, in as much as we've talked about, you know, Neil McCauley's team, you know, Vincent Hanna's team is also very strong. They are. And, I mean, Drucker, some of the stuff that Michael T. Williamson does with Charlene. Oh, yeah. The Ashley Judd character. That's like one of my favorite scenes actually in the movie is when Drucker is trying to talk to Charlene about, you know, turning in uh, Val Kilmer's character, Chris. And like, oh, you need to take care of yourself. And, you know, he goes through everything with her and everything he's saying to her is logical. But of course, like she still loves Chris, like even with all the stuff that they have been through. Yeah. And there is, again, this nonverbal scene where Charlene is out on the balcony to ID Chris because people think Chris has driven up and they want her to ID him. And there's like this unspoken thing where Chris looks at her and he's smiling because he thinks that like he's, you know, he sees his wife who he loves and they are going to be able to get away. And then she kind of signals to him that he needs to leave because the cops are there and he does. And it's like a heartbreaking moment for, for him. Val Kilmer plays it genius. 
Yeah, that is the hardest. Oh god, that's it's probably so my hard favorite for... thing he does in the whole oh. movie. I mean, the whole movie, that scene where his face just falls. Oof. He turns away and just starts talking to guys on the sidewalks, like, "Oh, is there an apartment to rent around here or whatever?" And then he gets in the car to leave, and it's just like his face is just, oh, you know, he's so sad. And then it cuts back inside. And Charlene has gone back in and said, oh, yeah, that's not him. And then you just, like, have the scene of her on the couch. And she's trying not to break because she knows that, you know, she's just said goodbye to her husband. And he's going to go and she's just going to be left there. But she can't telegraph that to the police. Well, and Drucker, you know, says you know, stop him at the end of the street. So everyone thinks, you're like, oh my God, he's going to get busted anyway. And now Charlene is going to go to jail and Dominic is going to go into a state home and everything's going to happen. The Drucker said that is just the culmination of your absolute worst nightmare. But Chris gets away. They're like, oh no, it's this other guy. And, you know, he gets away. And yeah, and then then Drucker's like, uh, you know, uh, Charlene, you want some coffee? She's like, yeah, that would be nice. But I mean that when she just moves her hand out on the balcony, like you talked about, oh, his face dropping, you can feel it. And again, it's that nonverbal, it's it that is. nonverbal stuff. It's the, it's brilliantly acted and they just managed to do so much with just an expression or a movement or whatever. And I'm just super impressed by that. And it's pretty much everybody in the movie has at least a little bit of that, you know. And I think that that's another thing with, you know, going back to the cinematography of this film and how brilliant it is, is how much they linger on people's faces. Like, especially De Niro and Pacino. Mm. One of the most memorable sequences of the film is when the police are doing that stakeout inside the truck, the box truck across from that metals place. Um, and De Niro's team is there, you know, trying to break in and everything is like dead silent, you know? And then one of the guys in the truck with Pacino sits down and his gun smacks against the wall of the truck And, of course, De Niro, like, hears it. And it's like this uh, infrared-type camera that they're looking at. And it's cutting back and forth between this infrared camera of De Niro's face and then this close-up of Pacino's face. And it's like the suspense of that is crazy. It's so crazy. You feel like they can actually see each other. You can, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's so creepy because, you know... De Niro, you see the outline of his face, but you don't see his eyes. He's like in the shadow. You know, he's in the shadows in this corner. And then, you know, it's like, oh, God, it's just, yeah, that that moment. And Al Pacino is all eyeballs, you know. He's got Mm -hmm. like those big round eyes anyway. And they keep cutting back to him. And it's like you can read everything that's going on in his head through those eyes. Whereas with De Niro, the eyes are hidden, like you said. And so it's like, again, he's shutting everything off. You can't access what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. But he runs on instinct, like that animal instinct. So when he hears this noise, he senses danger. He goes in. He's like, cut it. We're not doing this. Yep. And, you know, they all leave. And it's like this whole 
situation for the cops because like the SWAT guys are there and stuff. Ugh. And they're like, you know, I didn't bring my resources out here for nothing. But Hannah knows that if they go arrest them now for some petty crime, that that he loses the chance to get them on a bigger beef. Ah, talking beef. Beef. Stretch. Do a stretch. <laughs> it's like Worth I'm in LA stretch. Confidential now. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's too bad in a way this isn't set in Chicago because then we could like whip out our Chicago impressions oh, yeah. again. Like, got a few... clear shot. <laughs> got a clear shot. Take it. You know, I got to go watch the Bears. You I know? think about that every time. <laughs> I was thinking about that one when I was talking about Al Pacino taking a shot at Chirito. I just thought, don't say shot. <laughs> it's it's good well it's great because they have they really do set up this animalistic thing very well and it also goes back to manhunter because again this is not a show on manhunter but i do want to bring up a point manhunter has so many costume cues that look animalistic when you look at the clothing if you look at the patterns even in la takedown we had some of that and in this, they don't have it as much. I mean, what you do get is actually uh, Natalie Portman's character. You actually see she has on this plaid shirt in the first time that we see her. And the way the plaid is, it almost looks like, you know, bruised or holes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like you can see, you know, that is in there. And also what you see with Neil McCauley in terms of the outfit in this is he just has on the gray suit and he has the white shirt. And when we see his apartment, you know, there aren't any furnishings, really. You know, there's nothing there. Everything that he owns is basically like, you know, shades of black and white. You know what I mean? It's like he has the black coffee maker. You know, he has kind of the the gray flecked, you know, countertop. You know, it's just, it's a very sterile environment. And he always has the gray suit just to blend in. It's like he doesn't want to stick out at all. And, you know, again, I was thinking about even just some of the mannerisms and movement that he has. It's like an animal, like when he's in the bookstore and Edie sees him kind of for the first time or she's seen him before because she works there. Yeah. But she's like walking down the row and he just automatically shifts forward to get out of the way Mm -hmm. because it's just like he wants to be invisible like he, yeah. he always wants to be invisible and yeah. when he realizes like you had said when they're in the the diner when he realizes that she's noticed him his first reaction is fear mm-hmm. and like anger it's yeah he doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be found and it goes back again to the robbery the stakeout Again, he goes into the shadows, and he is seen in the shadows, and then he comes out and he hates it. Because it's like he wants to be completely off the radar. And also, I mean, when you take a look at Al Pacino throughout the film, he has on, you know, the black blazer. And by the end of the film, he's like wearing all black. I mean, maybe he has on all black throughout. I, I can't recall, but it's just like he's dead. Do you understand? It's like he is a product of the night. The he's old, death. He's he, death coming for, you know, Macaulay. Well, that's perfect because he is unstoppable. He is always moving. We never see Vincent Hanna sitting still. The only moment yeah. that we see it is at the hospital 
with Diane Venora. He is in a car. He gets in a fucking helicopter and then he gets into another car so that he can catch. That's something I love. Yeah. yeah. It's just like he's always moving again. He's in that nightclub. He's stalking his prey. He's hustling through that club. He doesn't have time. He needs to get it going. Yeah. I mean, the the funny, there's a really funny part for me. I laugh about it where he's gone back to the house and Diane Venora is like getting ready to go out. Mm hmm. And she doesn't, you know, she's just going to leave without him. She doesn't want to go with him because she's pissed at him. Yeah. So he, like, goes downstairs. He, like, like look like he's going to do the dishes. Then he's just like, fuck it. And then he just <laughs> leaves and goes back to work. <laughs> and it's just because, like, he can't relax. Like, we constantly see him in a state of either action or being, like, coiled to strike again. Like, he can't not be doing something. He cannot relax. This is never a guy who's relaxing. No, and he also uses instinct to shoot Macaulay at the end. Because those lights are right in his face. And he just moves his arm over because he instinctually knows where he is. And bang, he gets him. Yeah, he gets him in the chest. And, like, it's it's the shadow, like yes yes the shadow on the ground is yeah what he sees. Macaul because yeah. macaulay has kind of set it up so that he could go in front of these lights and it would blind hannah but hannah sees the it says how good of a hunter he is you know he sees the shadow and he's able to like instinctively shoot toward the right area to hit him yeah it's it's incredible it's incredible and it shows you just how strong he is and we already feel, you know, from watching this movie, that this is just a cycle. This is going to start over again. There's going to be a new crime. There's going to be a new thing. And everything is just going to continue. But the one thing that won't be there, unfortunately, for Hannah is Macaulay. Yeah. But Macaulay is, is like, again, that is his best friend. That is his... Brother. Yeah. Like his ultimate, you know... His ultimate antagonist, like he found his match, mm -hmm. and when and that's what's so sad about that ending. Yeah, like he knows, you know, that he'll never have this experience again, and it's like, you know, it's a huge loss for him. Like, it's it's like the hugest loss he could experience, because it's like he's he's losing part of himself. And yeah. even though they've talked about this, you know, they had this conversation, you know, I, I, <laughs> and I loved that. I loved what Pacino said in that scene when he said, you know, like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna like it, but I'm gonna do it. You right. know, he's like, and now I've had a chance to sit here and talk to you. If I have to kill you, I'm not going to be happy about it, you know? And that's the whole thing. Like, it's like, he's, you know, killed something beautiful. You know, and I think that is kind of like another hunter metaphor again. It's like, you know, these hunters that are hunting like these beautiful animals. It's like you respect this animal. And then when you kill it, it's like a sad thing almost because it's like, yes, you've done what you set out to do, but it's a huge loss at the same time. What's really crazy is, you know, Ted Levine's character is killed. Okay, and that's one of Pacino's guys. And I'm sure he feels bad about it, but I think he feels much worse about Neil McCauley. Uh, absolutely, he feels worse. I mean, like, 
he has a respect for people and a respect for human life that mm-hmm. we see throughout the film. Yeah. And there is a sadness at losing Bosco during the shootout. But when Neil is dead, it's like he's losing, like Hannah is losing part of himself. Yep. Like he's losing the greatest experience that he's ever had. He's losing someone that he respects beyond the bare respect for human life that he has. It's like somebody that he admires almost. Because it's the only person that he's ever had who matches up to him. Yeah, it's, and again, the Moby song, which we've talked about earlier, the lights, it really feels surreal. You feel like someone has gone to the other side, has gone to heaven. You know, it's and it's Pacino just so again. good. Pacino's like nonverbal acting in that mm. scene is like perfect like he is able to just show what like his inner torment at having to do what he just did you know like he's achieved what he wanted to achieve yeah yeah he's achieved what he's been hunting for the whole time but now that it's over it's like he it has this emptiness back inside him well and you have to think back to the big scene in the movie you know which is are two actors coming together, you know, De Niro, Pacino, at Kate Manalini. Now, Michael Mann said this was the most important scene of the film. If this scene was not right, the movie would not work. So, you know, both guys knew that this was something that had to be the best thing that they had ever done. And Robert De Niro didn't want to rehearse it because he wanted it just to happen. And the way they had the cameras set up is they actually had cameras rolling on both of them at the same time. And a master. Yeah. Two shot. So that they would be able to catch, you know, what was actually going on and use the same take as much as possible. Yeah. They said what ended up in the film was mostly take 11. Um, And it's so good because you can really see, you know, these guys reacting off of each other. And they knew that they had such a limited space in the frame because the way the cameras were set up, it was so tight that if they moved too far, you know, like just, you know, like a centimeter too far, it would pick up the other camera. So it was it was such, you know, a big moment. And when you got to that, it was it was a break. That's what's so funny about it. You know, it comes in about an hour and a half into the film. Okay, and this is one Hannah after we've got this new Dawn Fades Moby. He's in the car after the helicopter. He's going for it. You know, De Niro's got his hand on the gun. You know, Pacino was like, is this going to happen? And then Pacino just walks up in a very disarming way and is just like, you want to go get a coffee? <laughs> you know, De Niro's like, sure. You know, it sounds good or whatever. And then they go. And so it's like you get this chuckle. So it lightens this load and it breaks this tension. So you're able to go into this scene, you know, more open. And again, as you've talked about, you know, Neil McCauley is tighter. Vincent Hanna is looser. But I'm surprised by how much information Vincent Hanna gives about his life being a mess and he talks about these dreams that he has you know of all these victims of all these crimes and these eight ball hemorrhages so it looks like they have black eyes you know and they're just all around him it actually sounds like something you know like out of Macbeth you know it's like this this Shakespearean you know deep 
deep, deep thing, you know? And, and it's like, and this is also around the time that Al Pacino did Looking for Richard, which is incredible. So it's I like, love it. yeah, it, it's just, there's so much in these monologues and in their reactions, you know? And then like Robert De Niro talks about, you know, he has these dreams about drowning. And, you know, Pacino's like, you know what that means? And he's like, yeah, it's about not having enough time. And guess what? He doesn't have enough time. No. What happens at the very beginning of the film when Pacino is leaving Diane Venora's bedroom to go to work? She's like, I'll make coffee. And he goes, I don't have any time. I'm out of time. You know, so it's like you really understand just how much is riding, you know, on this particular scene. Yeah. And you have these two actors who... You know, this is why we came. Literally, if there was no movie and these two guys, that would be it. And from L.A. Takedown to this, the big difference is, is that we have the addition of these dreams, these monologues about these dreams. So textually, it's very it's very similar. Um, and, and that injects like a real theatrical element. Sure does. Um, which I think you're getting at, you know, saying it's kind of like Macbeth or like Shakespeare and it is, and I don't think, you know, I think that giving that to Al Pacino is like, you know he's going to pull it off. Oh, yeah. Because he does this, like, really well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, he's slowing things down. Like, he's controlling the scene in a way, in which is what, you know, Hannah is used to doing. Right. Right? Every time Hannah goes into a scene in this movie, he's controlling that scene. You know, you talked about it, like how he moves through the room, you know, when he goes into a room. He's used to being the guy who's controlling the scene, and he's doing that here, too, and he's kind of playing that. And because Macaulay is kind of guarded, you know, it's kind of disarming for him to reveal so much about himself. And that's what Hannah does best, is disarms his kind of opponent (laughs) in these cases. And... That scene is so beautifully done because they keep physically mirroring each other. Um, And I didn't really notice that uh, until we were watching a featurette and Michael Mann started talking about it. But he's absolutely right. Like, anytime it cuts back to one of them, they look at each other, then they look off to the side. They both look off to the same side. Um, for Pacino, it's his left and it's De Niro's right. They'll like look off to the side and then come back and catch each other's eyes again. But also, if one of them shifts slightly one way, then the other one shifts slightly the other way. And it's almost kind of just like that mirror game. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, actors play um, as part of, you know, warm ups and different things. You know, and, and I see the. They just did that, and it wasn't rehearsed. It was kind of just like this natural thing. And the two guys, like Pacino and De Niro, were so in the moment that I don't even think they were thinking about it. They were just, like, embodying these characters and doing exactly what these characters would do. And it's just amazing to watch. They were ready to go. I mean, let's let's talk about it. They were in Godfather Part Two. They're both in the movie. They both have big parts in it, but they don't ever have any screen time together. So it's like in everybody, you know, throughout the years, who's better? Al Pacino, Robert De Niro. People they're, go back and yeah. forth, right? They're like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones of actors. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's just it's so good to finally get to see them, you know, work together. And of course, I mean, we do see them together at the end of the film as, as well. Um, but, you know, there's no dialogue, you know, in that scene. I can't say enough about what it's like to watch this it, other than it's a master class in acting, you know, to see these guys and how they play it and how it works. And again, also in terms of the script, how great it is that the only piece of information that Hannah really gets out of, you know, Macaulay is that he has a woman and that is the piece that he uses to get him at the very end. I mean, and also, oh, this is crazy. Think about this. Some things I thought about. So the movie's called Heat, and what does Macaulay do? He pulls the fire alarm, <laughs> right? And then what happens when you pull the fire alarm? The fire department comes out. You know, I mean, now there literally wasn't a fire in there. But you know what I mean? It's it's kind of interesting when you think about it metaphorically. Pulls fire alarm, so the fire department comes. And, you know, it, it's just like you've got these two, you know, opposing forces. And it's just like, brother, you are going down. Right? You know? Yeah. Well, I wanted to say one more thing about the, um, like, the the acting and everything. And that is just about, really about the directing mm. um, because and the writing. Because Michael Mann helped all these actors come up with like these really intricate backstories yeah. which you don't necessarily see on screen i mean one of the ones that you were referring to was charlene that's incredible like the ashley judd story like you don't know what her background is um, but but ashley judd knows what the background is mm -hmm. and because she does she's able to like bring this huge like undercurrent to what she's doing and it's kind of like that whole metaphor of like the tip of the iceberg, like we're seeing what's above the water, but Ashley Judd is working with everything that's under the water too. And because of that, it's like just this huge performance. And this is the same thing with every other actor in this because Michael Mann had backstories for like everyone. Mm -hmm. And some of these were based on real people. And then he also had them doing all this prep and so it's just like the things that were happening off screen brought so much to what happens on screen. And I just think that that's one of the things that makes this movie the best. Well, I mean, you have, you know, criminals that are ready to commit a crime. You know, you have cops that that understand what it takes to take down criminals. You have Al Pacino who is best known for his performance as Michael Corleone in The Godfather. Everything in that is internal. Everything is internal as Michael Corleone, you know, when you look back. Yeah, you and, know, and it's internal for Hannah, too, because he does have a whole lot going on. Like, yeah. he, you know, again, we're playing a lot with, like, opposites. Like, Macaulay is super introverted, and whereas Hannah comes off a lot more extroverted, but Hannah also is, like, holding back a lot. And a lot of the stuff that you're seeing with, the, like, his outbursts is just acting. Yeah, it's planned. Yeah, it's just intended to cause a response. It's not real. It's just, like, a, a trigger. It also kind of reminds you, in a way, of, like, Heath Ledger's The Joker and the things that he would do to provoke but it's like when I think about The Godfather and I think about Al Pacino, I, I fully understand what you're saying in Heat, and he has a very rich internal life. 
but in Godfather, it was fully internalized. And again, when you see Heat the first time, you may not realize this is a tactic. You may not realize he's doing cocaine. You may not, you know, quite understand, you know, where he's headed. So at first glance, it would seem like it's much more of an external performance. And I think it's just so impressive because, again, people think of Al Pacino, they think of The Godfather, right? And so it's like there are these these larger moments, intentional and, and so brilliant. But you see, you know, a bigger character, and then you see Neil McCauley, who couldn't be more inside if he tried. Yeah. So it's 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 very interesting, just that juxtaposition of those characters. And also, again, when you think of, you know, Al Pacino and his famous roles, how you think, oh, okay, this is how this compares. You know, it's like, let's turn up this level. You know what I mean? It's it's so precise. It It's so well done. I mean, I'll, I'll watch this thing, you know, a hundred more times. Like, oh, and I want to mention this. Breeden. Uh, Breeden. We did not mention yeah. Breeden. How did we not talk about Dennis Haysburg? Well, it's just because there's so many people in this. But Oh, my God. And Bud Court is the uh, prick boss. Oh, my God. So good. But and Dennis... that was shot at the big boy in Burbank. Right. Like, which we go to eat at. Like, all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, that character is so tragic because mm-hmm. he's in the right place at the right time. Which seems like a good thing, but in this case is not. It's horrible. You know, it's we have another person who's struggling as an ex-con to live in society where, you know, people hate ex-cons. You know, yeah. it's impossible yeah. for them to get real work. It's impossible for them to get a legitimate job. And so they end up doing, you know, really menial jobs. And this is what he's doing. He's a cook at this diner. He's ill-treated by his boss, Bud Cord, who's like on a power trip. And the only option, you know, that he really feels he has is to go and do this criminal activity um, because it's the only way he can make a real living and take care of himself and his wife. Um, And it's, it's so sad because he agrees in that split second to be the driver for this job and that immediately leads to his death. I mean, the the scene that we have right before he goes in, you know, when right before he goes into the big boy, you know, he's with his partner, you know, and it's just like, oh, you know, it's like, I'm going to make it work. I'm really going to try, you know, and she's like, I believe in you, you know, and it, it's just like, OK, I really feel that, that, you know, it, it's going to happen. And he walks into the big boy and he's like, you know, goes up to Bud Court and is like, hey, you know, my parole officer said you might have work for me, you know, when he's ready and he's proud and he's ready to make a change. And he's like, you know, I'm a good, you know, grill cook. And then he tells him he's going to clean the toilets and take out the garbage and do all these other things. And then Bud Court says, and I'm going to take 25% of your paycheck. You know, and, and the thing that's really creepy about that is, you know, I, I've known someone you know, who, who did have a, a conviction. And this is a very real thing. This is business as usual. Yeah. You know, they, they will, they, and I was like, holy shit, you know, but it's like you are over a barrel. There's nothing. We're way too deep in this episode for me to jump up on the soapbox about this issue, but it's a huge issue. Yeah. And it's, it's a big one that I think about a lot, which is, you know, we have this system where we're telling somebody that they have to serve time. 
Yeah. But then once they've served the time that we've given them, they are still imprisoned because they're imprisoned by a system that doesn't allow them to get ahead. You you know, whenever you're filling out any job application, what do you have to put on there? Whether you've been in jail, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't matter, you know, what kind of job it is. You have to, you know, explain this. And, and it, it really prevents people from being able to rejoin society. And it certainly, certainly leads to people being stuck in a life of crime where the only way that they can make a living is to continue to participate in criminal activity because that's the only place where they can be accepted. It's, well, and again, it's like, you know, it's like you do anything I don't like, I'm going to report you as loaded or stealing or yeah. high or whatever. It's just like they've got you and there's there's nothing that can happen. And it's just like these people, oh God, just have this power over you. And again, you know, we as the audience have the benefit of being able to see, you know, Breeden before he goes in, you know, and it's like, okay, this is this is the deal. You know, he's ready to make this change. And then we have this heartbreaking scene, you know, where he's with his wife and he's crying and she's like, I'm proud of you. And he's like, why are you proud of me? You know what I mean? Like he can't handle it. Because he's ready to change, but no one wants to let he's him change. He's not allowed to. No. Like it's not allowed. And, you know, I think that we can see another really nice juxtaposition with a couple of other characters that we haven't really talked about that much, which is uh, William Fickner and Henry Rollins. Oh, yeah. Uh, as Van Zant and Hugh Benny. And these guys are white-collar mm-hmm. businessmen. But you want to tell me they aren't, like, criminal scumbags? Van Zant is such a crook. What is he doing with the Canary Islands thing? We only catch a piece of that. Really, really terrible. He just decides that he's just going to kill these people like it's no big deal. It's just like he has no feeling for anyone else. The only thing that matters is money. And he knows that his privilege is going to protect him from anything ever happening to him. And then he has, you know, Henry Rollins as his bodyguard. It's this big beefy dude. And he just does, you know, whatever Van Zandt tells him to do. And I'm sure it's because he gets paid. And of course, they're in bed with Wayne Grove at one point. And then, like, they're the reason of what happens to Trejo. Yep. And, you know, this is the thing. Like, what makes those people different than the Macaulay crew? What makes those people different than Donald Breeden? What makes them above the law? But they are. I mean, we could easily say that they are. Yeah, there's no question that that you could say, you know, that they're above the law. I I mean, there's, there's a real whole thing there that i could just keep going on forever and probably shouldn't but i think that the movie does want you to ask these questions it does and it it just brings up all of these things about people what do you know about people you know because it's like again they'll show you this much but what is underneath what is happening you know where did they come from where did you go? Cotton Eye Joe? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> all right. Yeah, all right. right. I'm trying to be insightful <laughs> or deep, and I just really smoked shit on that one. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I think I'm ready to, to torch this episode, just like the ambulance after the just robbery. Just heat it up, you Just mean? heat it. I'm going to heat it up a little bit. Oh, Put oh. some heat on it. <laughs> I'm going to put a little heat on This actually is a good point. So Robert De Niro is wearing a paramedic's uniform when he's committing the robbery. Oh, wow. So it's, again, it's like, 
you know, they have an ambulance, which is designed to help people. He is wearing a paramedic's uniform. They rob, they murder, you know what I mean? And that's, you know, it, again, it's always Visually shown. ironic. Yeah. Again. It, it's an incredible movie. I can't say enough about it. I hope we covered everyone in it. There are so many characters. I can't remember the name of Braden's wife, and that's Lillian. God, Lillian was incredible. Kim Staunton. Excellent, excellent. Kim Staunton brings so much to the table. Again, it's a very limited role, but you really feel the love that she has for Dennis Haysbert and, and all of these scenes where she's trying to build him up and she really believes in him. Well, and they're trying to get back on track. Like, they're trying to do the impossible. Right. And, you know, it's really hard to, to watch that because it is really sad. Man. She's excellent. She's amazing. She's a, everybody. I mean, this movie, again, all the time, you know, it, it's been a pleasure to watch this over and over, to watch Absolutely. the special features, the documentaries, everything, to read about it, you know, the painting. I mean, I, I don't know. Everything. There's, everything every, about it, like the detail, the, the attention to detail is so impressive. And yeah. it, it also makes it a great rewatch. Um, Always. You know, I mean, that's a big thing for us. It's like what, you know, we pick a lot of things that we want to rewatch over and over. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable stuff in this movie. Like I, I calling it a comfort film is a little bit of a question mark in one way, because honestly, it just makes you so uncomfortable. Right. So much of the time. And it, it brings to mind all of these really upsetting and tragic things about life. But it also is just so beautifully made and so intricate that it's a pleasure to continue watching it over and over, even though it is sad and even though it does break your heart mm -hmm. so many times. Um, it's just eminently rewatchable because there's always something else that you can discover. It's a piece of art. It's a 10 out of 10. Uh, always, I, I would come back to this. Yeah, I, I just, I don't even know, I don't even know what else to say about it, but the comfort for me in this film is in the perfect construction, uh, all of the research, you know, that, that comes through with the actors, with the director, the, the experience of the cinematographer, the skill, the music, it's just a wonderful gem of a film. It is, absolutely. All right, so next week we will be back for our third week of the Comfort Film Crime series with really another one of my absolute favorite films of all time, Dog Day Afternoon, and I just can't wait. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about Dog Day Afternoon. It's, again, masterpiece top to bottom. Don't want to get into it at all, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of our absolute favorites, again, We've rewatched it so many times. Yeah, we we love this movie, and uh, maybe my favorite Al Pacino performance. I know that nobody will agree with me in the world, but you I, don't know I, that. I fully love it. I love the story. Uh, John Cazale. Oh man, uh, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna be so excited to get into this one. So be sure to join us next week for Dog Day Afternoon, uh, and until then. Stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody. <laughs>